Welcome. Glad that you are here at uh, Carroll First Baptist this morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the other pastors that's here. And uh, I guess I should have talked to Pastor Mark. Maybe I should have done the baptism because the, my girth might have been better suited. Um, but it's okay. Uh, I am just very grateful that uh, our pastor is physically able to do baptisms once again. Amen. It, uh, I was thinking about this. Last week is uh, one year anniversary from uh, Pastor Mark's uh, accident, and so uh, we're, we're grateful to have him back at full strength. And it also marked the two-year anniversary from this whole COVID business starting. So uh, aren't we grateful that we are here in person and you're not having to watch this on a, on a screen at home? I am grateful for that because Pastor Mark and I both very much disliked being here by ourselves, preaching to a camera on a tripod in the center of the auditorium with no one here. So we are grateful to see all of your smiling faces here this morning. If you would, please stand with me uh, and hear our call to worship. It comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, in verse 18. Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18, says this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Mark chapter 12, verse 35 says, And Jesus taught, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware, beware of the, the scribes who walk, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers." they will receive the greater judgment. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. Your word that is, in fact, the word of life. Your word that gives to us the gospel of God the gospel of grace. We're thankful for the, the words of Jesus today, what we can learn about him, what we can learn about what he thinks, the applications that we can make today. We ask that they would honor you and help each one either come to know Jesus or follow Jesus today. We pray for your blessing on our time. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 849. 849. Mark chapter 12 will be in verses 35 through 40 this morning. 
Um, <clears throat> we all have questions, right? We all have questions about God. Sometimes we all have questions for God. Uh, since we're human, since we are limited in our understanding, we will always have questions, right? None of us are going to have it all figured out in this life. We will continue to have questions uh, the rest of our life. Sometimes those questions are legitimate questions. Sometimes they are not legitimate questions. Sometimes our questions have answers that we can find. Sometimes the answers are only known to God. Sometimes questions, questions are asked in order to understand. Other times, questions are asked to affirm what we already believe. Nevertheless, asking questions about Jesus may be one thing, but what is it when Jesus begins asking us questions? That's something different. Well, after four confrontations with religious leaders, the first over political, a political issue like taxes, the second a theological issue like the resurrection, and thirdly a, a religious issue, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus now here at the end of chapter, near the end of chapter 12, initiates a final confrontation by asking a question to the questioners. In this case, it is the scribes. His questions turn out to be more of a, a riddle that stumped the, the scribes. The question remained unanswered in the text, but the message was obvious. We read his first question in verse 35. And, Jesus, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Here in verse 38 and in verse 30, excuse me, 35 and in verse 38, we can see that Jesus was, was teaching. Right? After all the questions, after all the back and forth, and, and we'll remember all these confrontations that Jesus had with religious leaders are, are in the same day. Right? We've been splitting them up over weeks, but this is, this is one after another. They're asking these questions. And here, when it's all said and done, Jesus then says, okay, now it's my turn. And he, and he proceeds to do some teaching, and he uses a, a question uh, to do that. This was uh, pretty normal for Jesus to use uh, questions as a method um, to, in order to, to teach. Sometimes he used questions more than he used answers, if you can imagine that. But here he asked a question that, again, might be called a riddle about Jesus being the son of David. Uh, Matthew's gospel records it a little bit different. He says it this way, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Let's define a few terms before we get too far into this text. The, the title Christ here, and it's a title, it's not a, not a name, it's not Jesus' middle name, it's a title. And the title is actually the, the word that, that means Messiah or anointed one. In the Old Testament, when, when the Messiah was talked about, it was talked about, or he was talked about, as the future king of Israel who would reign on the throne of David. Uh, the reference here to the son of David is a, a messianic title. 
It's a title that, that referred to this chosen one who would come from God. This title has already been applied to Jesus in the gospel. In Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, which we already looked about at several weeks ago, but in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, this, this title was actually shouted out referring to Jesus as the son of David. It was widely believed that the Christ, or the Messiah, would be the physical descendant of David. That, that was uh, widely believed. John chapter, <clears throat> John chapter 7, verse 42 says this, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So everyone, generally speaking, knew that this Messiah would come from David. It was a belief that was well established and agreed upon. The Old Testament, in several places we could look at, talk about this, this line of David or the, the, branch, of Jesse, or this, uh, the, the branch of Jesse or, or, or something of that language was talking about this offspring that would come eventually. The Messiah had to be the son of David. In order to fulfill what the Old Testament was saying, he had to be the son of David. He had to be a descendant. He had to be a man from the lineage of David or from the line of David. Had to be. And yet these Jewish leaders were blind to the fulfillment of that happening right in front of them in the person of Jesus. Uh, Jesus questioned his, his uh, continued his question by pointing out that the Messiah would actually be more than just the son of David. Yes, the son of David. Yes, the descendant of David. But more. And he does this by actually using David's own words, which is a, probably a good way to argue uh, by using David's own words. And we see those in verses 36 and 37. And David himself, this is Jesus speaking, saying, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... And in some of your Bibles, you, you have an, an indention or an indent of these words. And that's to tell us that this is a quotation. So now he's quoting, and he's quoting a passage, a particular passage from the Old Testament. We'll talk about it in a second. And so this is Jesus quoting a, a psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, put until I put your enemies under your feet, end quote. This is Jesus again. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, if you just heard me read that and thought, I'm not quite sure what he just said, you would be in good company, right? That's, that's many of us who, who read this. So, so we need to, we need to work, it, work it through, and, and we will. Uh, but basically this, Jesus is arguing that how can the Christ be the son of David when he is the Lord of David, which seems to be what this psalm is saying. Before we get there, we should note that this verse, 36, is, is a quotation, again, from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, which is said to be the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, some 27 times. But, but as we recognize this, we should also recognize what Jesus says about these words. The beginning of verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. What is Jesus saying about David's words? He's saying that David's words were inspired by God. That the Old Testament, the, these words were actually God's words to his people. 
This is evidence for the inspiration of the Old Testament, that in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, David said these things. The New Testament tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And some of us might be okay with the New Testament being inspired, but we we don't like some of the Old Testament stuff that seems a little sketchy. Well, here Jesus is saying, actually, actually, those words were from or by or in the Holy Spirit, declared by David in the Holy Spirit, which goes quite well with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that says, For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we got the Bible. That's how we got these words. That's how the psalm was written through David, yes, carried along or borne along by the Spirit. So then, the psalms... The Old Testament and the New are indeed inspired. They are indeed God's words. Don't take it from me. Don't take it from me. Take it from Jesus. You want to believe somebody? Believe Jesus. Jesus is saying those words were, in fact, from God. They are authoritative then if they're from God. They have have a meaning that we should seek to understand. And Jesus helps us here. Because what Jesus is doing with Psalm chapter 1 10 verse 1 is he is interpreting the scripture for us. He's helping us understand what is Psalm 110 verse 1 even saying. Jesus takes this and he shows us what it means. He shows us, like he said in John chapter 5 verse 39, that the Old Testament or that the scriptures bear witness or they testify of him, meaning that the Bible is about Jesus that the Old Testament is about Jesus. That though Jesus came as a baby, Jesus has always existed. And the Old Testament is speaking to him. Jesus used this psalm in the Old Testament to do a particular thing with these scribes. He's exposing the ignorance of the scribes. We'll remember that these scribes were supposedly the, the theological elite They were supposed to know the Old Testament, be scholars in the Old Testament. And here Jesus is taking their material and showing it to them of how much they are missing. Psalm 110 is, in fact, a messianic psalm. It is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. Now, again, to be fair, it's a little confusing. Let me just read what Jesus quoted. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So first, let's let's see this. Who is actually firstly writing those words? That's David. David is saying that the Lord said something. So David is the writer. The first Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. The first Lord is talking about about God. Now, in your Bible, you don't see the distinction, in most of your Bibles, you don't see the distinction between the two lords. They, They look the same. Now, in some versions, they don't look the same. And the reason they look the same is because in the Greek, that's what the New Testament is translated from, this, this, it's the same word. It's the same word in that language. It's kurios, Lord, same word. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's two different words. The first word is Yahweh. 
That's speaking about the, the covenant-keeping God. The Lord, God, the God of Israel said to my Lord. And the second Lord, word there is, is a different word in the Hebrew. It's Adonai, which is referring to God as well. Um, but here it is being applied to or referenced to the Messiah. It can mean master or it can mean God, but here it's talking about David's Lord or the Messiah. So, so here what we want to understand that the writer David is saying, he is saying that God has said to David's Lord, God has said to the Messiah, what? What did he say to the Messiah? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What does that sound like? Hebrews chapter 10, listen to these words. And when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that God said that David's Lord, the Messiah, who is Jesus, that I will what? You'll sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God had spoken in the Old Testament in places such as Psalm chapter 110 to communicate that the Messiah was to be the son of David, yes, and the Lord of David. Even David recognized that, right? Even David, whose son the Messiah would be, also recognized that this son would be Lord. Kent Hughes writes, it would take a divine human being to fulfill the scriptural requirements for Messiah, end quote. And of course it did. It did take a divine human being in order to do that. And that's just what Jesus is. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36 say this, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 37, he continues, David calls him, that's Messiah, calls him Lord or his son Lord. How is he his son? Right? So he's saying, if he's only his son and David calls him Lord, how can he be just the son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So if the Messiah is to be both David's son and David's Lord, how could he be just a man? He can't be just a man. Thus the need for Jesus. Jesus was implicitly saying that the Messiah, that he was the Messiah. The Messiah who was both Son and Lord, both a descendant and a deity, both inferior as a man and superior as God, both human and divine. This is what Jesus is saying, and this is why Jesus had to come, because there is no one else who could fulfill this. Only Jesus, who is God, 
could be born of a virgin to become a man for us. That is why Jesus put on flesh, and in one paraphrase it says, and moved into the neighborhood. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is the God-man. He is Messiah. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the son of David and the Lord of David. And to this, the scribes were stumped and they were silenced. They, they had no response for what Jesus had just said. And here this crowd, this, this immense multitude was glad and delighted. Maybe to see the scribes stumped, I'm not sure. These religious leaders were confronted They were confronted with something. See, they had a particular view of what the Messiah should be. It had a lot to do with their politics. It had a lot to do with the idea of of a nationalistic king coming to conquer Rome and free the Jewish people. But here, Jesus is saying something different. It's coming into conflict with his political vision. You see, they knew the Old Testaments. They knew this verse They knew the the Old Testament. They They were scholars. That's not untrue. But they were ignorant of its full meaning. How do we know that? Because as the prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled, right before their very eyes, they don't even see it. They were ignorant of the meaning of the Old Testament. The truth was the religious leaders were educated in the law, but their education was merely intellectual. It had no effect on their heart or their character, or even their conduct. And so Jesus warns the crowd about these men. And we see that next in verses 38 through 40, where Jesus has an indictment on the scribes. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Again, these are, these are teachers of the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling the people to beware of them. It sounds kind of crazy that these are the people that they should be aware about. And yet, as we read on, we understand why. These men were clearly not interested in the Lord. They were interested in their position and in the praise of men. And their pride was visible. And therefore, Jesus gives several reasons to beware. And we see the first in verse 38 that they craved attention. Beware of the Pharisees who like to walk around in long robes. Now you might think, what's wrong with a long robe? Maybe you like to wear a long robe. Like what's wrong with a long robe? Why single out the long robes, right? Well, what they wore actually was a long white linen robe hemmed with long white fringes. And they did this in order to stand out. They did this in order to get attention to be seen. They craved attention. That's the first reason to beware. They they wanted attention. That's what they were about. Secondly, they demanded that their status be acknowledged. Look at verse 38. And they liked greetings in the marketplace. Now, now this isn't um, like our greeters in the foyer. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're, We're talking about people who were, who, who were big on titles and they wanted everybody to, to uh, uh, 
approach them and to, to say that they're a rabbi or that they're a master or that they're, they're a, follow, a father even. They wanted people to stand up in their presence as they walked through. They were big on status. Not only that, verse 39 says, and they like to have the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted to display their authority. Not only did they want, they want to, for you to verbalize that, that they were who they were, but they wanted to demonstrate that they were who they were. And by the best seats in the synagogue means that they sat up front. Now, I know some of you think the best seats are in the back, but in this case, in this case, it was in the front. And it was in the front so they could look down on the common people. Not what I'm doing today, but that's what they would do, right? That's what they would do. The fourth is that they expected privileged places. The rest of verse 39 says, and they, they wanted places of honor at the feasts, which would, would have been near the host. That would have been the place of honor. They, they wanted or expected that they would sit in the place of honor. And then finally, well, the last two things are in verse 40. They exploited the widows. Read it with, with me again in verse 40. These scribes who devoured widows' houses. You see, because the scribes were not allowed to receive money for their work, they lived on subsidies. Uh, for instance, they, they acted, um, in essence, as estate planners for widows. And they would convince widows to donate their homes and donate their husband's inheritance to the temple. And then they would take the profits. This is what it means to devour widows' houses. They preyed on the weak and the vulnerable, even though clearly the Old Testament, again, which they were experts of, condemned this behavior even though, even in Jesus' words that Jesus had just said about the great command to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, clearly this is not loving your neighbor as yourself if you're seeking to take advantage of other people. Verse 40 also says, for a pretense, they make long prayers, which means they, they pretended to be spiritual. Right? They wanted to be noticed for their, their spiritual prayers, the, the way they prayed in front of other people. They, they, they feigned piety or, or holiness, and they did it in order to get rich. Now, in our day, we might make a, a connection with those we might see, maybe on a television, who tell us certain things in order for you to send money to them, in order to receive something from the Lord, Maybe a blessing or a financial blessing or a healing. If you will only send your $20 a month to so-and-so, right? Or your $50 a month or sow a seed or claim a promise or, or whatever. They are liars. Those are swindlers. They're charlatans. They're frauds. Don't send your money to them. <laughs> Do not, do not send your money to them. They, they, they make promises that they cannot keep. This is pretense. This is pretending to be spiritual in order to take from others. And Jesus is exposing the lack of holiness in the scribes here by pointing out all these things to beware of. Here they professed to be one thing. 
these experts in the law, these religious leaders, and yet they lived another way. That's called hypocrisy. They were not men of integrity. They were not men of character. Warren, Warren Wearsby writes, character is not given, but developed by walking with God, which these scribes were not doing. Now this may be um, easier than you might think to become like a scribe. You see, m- many of us sitting in a church like this on a Sunday like this have lots of Bible knowledge. Uh, you might even have a lot of religious activity in your life or, for, or, or in your past. But unless our conscience is captive to the word of God, unless we are walking in the spirits, unless we're pursuing holiness, our knowledge, our knowledge will only puff up. Right? It won't inform our conduct, but rather be a danger to our motivations. We will have ulterior motives and even selfishness. See, here's the reality. Did the scribes know a lot of things? Yeah, they knew a lot of things. Could they have done good things? Sure, they could have done good things. But God is far, far more concerned about the condition of our hearts than he is the works of our hands. He is far more interested in the internal than the external, which we'll see next week in the next section. So we must ask ourselves, where where is our heart? Jesus is exposing these these scribes as as their heart is not in line with what God wants. How could we know that? Because we know where their treasure was. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And here Jesus lays this right out for the scribes. What, what, What do you desire? What do you long for? Where's your treasure? It's in It's in position, in power, in prosperity. Well, that's where your heart is then. That's where where the scribe's heart was. And so we ask ourselves, where is our treasure? And we begin to find out where our heart is. Well, Jesus closes this teaching with a warning of coming condemnation at the end of verse 40. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation or the greater judgments. Judgment is coming on those who use spiritual authority to harm others for their own benefits. Right? We can know that Jesus is the just judge who will one day right all wrongs. And there's a lot wrong in the world, isn't there? There's a lot of injustice. The world is indeed broken. But Romans chapter 12, verse 19 tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. J.C. Ryle, writing more than 100 years ago in the 1800s, says the day of judgment will soon be here. So if he said that in the 1800s, I guess we're closer yet, aren't we? The day of judgment will soon be here. The joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Job 20, verse 5. His end will be shame and everlasting contempt, end quote. It's not just judgment that's coming, though. What does Jesus say? He says the greater condemnation. Did you see that? The coming condemnation for these religious hypocrites and the like will be the greater 
condemnation. Why does he say greater? Why doesn't he just say condemnation? That's bad enough, isn't it? Judgment is bad enough. Why does he say greater? Well, whereas it is true that all sin is equally sin, yes and amen, it is also true that not all sin is equal in punishment. You may not agree with me. Let me show you an example. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus denounces several cities that had not repented, who had rejected him in his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says this, or the text says this, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then Jesus says this, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Tyre and Sidon were known to be places where Baal, the pagan god of Baal, was worshipped. These were not good places. Many of us know about Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah, two different cities, but both known for their unrighteousness, both known for their rejection of God's design for sexuality, and, and they engage then in what is deemed unnatural. In both cases, condemnation was pronounced against both of them. We know well the condemnation against Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus says this, that on the day of judgments, it's not that both won't be judged. Both will be judged. But one will be more bearable than the other. That these cities, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, It'll be more bearable for them than those who witnessed Jesus' ministry and his miracles. So clearly, there is a greater condemnation upon those who have a greater knowledge. Jesus' point is to say that those who have greater knowledge of him have greater accountability to him. To which all of us ought to pause because if you sat under the word of God, you have accountability to it. If you've taught the word of God, you have accountability to it. As a preacher, I have great accountability before the Lord for the things that I have said. In fact, James, 1, James 3 verse 1 tells us that not many should become teachers, knowing that they will endure a stricter judgment. Stricter, greater. There are degrees of this, apparently. 
Danny Aiken writes this, one of the most dangerous vocations in life is being a theologian. One of the most dangerous places you can go is to a Bible-believing church that faithfully proclaims the gospel. Each time you hear God's word taught, your accountable before him, your, your, your accountability before him increases. Tragically, those who often receive God's revelation and traffic in his truth become deaf, even hardened. Rather than walking humbly, they become proud. Having drawn so near to Jesus, they think, they, they think and act nothing like Jesus. God will not overlook such hypocrisy and sin, end quote. To know is to be responsible for. Jesus' sober warning is for any who engage in this kind of spiritual abuse, this kind of hypocrisy. Now, I do want to say on a side note this. There are some who may look at the hypocrisy they see in religion and in the church as evidence to not believe, as evidence to, to, to step out. As evidence, as though, as though this justifies rejecting Jesus, rejecting the church, rejecting the Bible. Kind of like, if that reflects about the God, if you are a reflection of the God, that God, I don't want anything to do with that. So therefore, I, I'm going to reject it all wholesale. But this would be to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. See, the failure of one professing Christian does not justify the rejection of Christianity. Additionally, one's unbelief, though that may be honest, which the hypocrite is not being honest, though the unbeliever might be honest in their unbelief, it's of no greater value eternally. Meaning both will be judged. So if you look at the hypocrite and you say, well, I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that, God. I'm going to stay in my unbelief. As though that's a moral high ground? It is not a moral high ground. Unbelief will be judged. Hypocrisy will be judged. Abuse will be judged. All wrongs will be judged. Save for the work of Jesus being applied to your account. Does the church need to do better? Of course the church needs to do better. Of course it does. No one would suggest otherwise. But ultimately, the church, the church is not defined only by the failures of professing Christians. If that's how you're going to define the church, then yeah, you're right. You, you, there's no hope. That is not how the church is primarily defined. The church is primarily defined by the head of the church. The head of the church who is Jesus, who is the perfect righteous one, who is the one who, who did for us what no one else could do, the one who will never disappoint, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the reason to believe. He is the reason to persist. He is the reason to not give up just when you see hypocrisy or unbelief or failure in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, as we consider Jesus' teaching today, let's consider a few questions in response. First, what place does God's word have in your life? See, Jesus takes this passage from the Old Testament and he helps us understand how, how it, what its meaning and how we can understand it. So the question is, do you, do you read the Bible? And more than that, do you believe the Bible? Are you captive to the Bible? 
One writer says, has the, or asks the question, has the Bible been made captive to culture? That's an interesting point, isn't it? Has the culture taken, taken the Bible? Now, now we can't believe certain things in the Bible because the culture tells us that it's wrong. Or are we captive to the Bible? Jesus demonstrates how the Bible or how the scriptures are to inform and direct our vision of God, our actions in life, and our view of Jesus. Secondly, why do you serve God and others? Last week we talked about loving God and loving your neighbor. Why would, why would you even do that? Right? Here we see scribes who are doing it with, with wrong motivations. They're seeking to gain something for themselves. Some might do it in order to, to gain a standing with God. Again, another wrong motive. Serving others in order to get served is not what Jesus had said in Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he says this of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Why do you serve God and others? And thirdly, why do you, what, what do you think about Christ, right? That's the question. Who's, whose son is this? Who, who is this Christ? The scribes missed the boat. They didn't see it. But we ask you, what would you say? What would you say about this Christ? This is no small question. We actually need to get this one right. It not only affects our life now, but our life to come. We've already talked much about who this Christ is. But let me tell you, he's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited, anointed one. He's the one chosen by God, the Son of God, sent to save. He's the virgin-born, perfect, perfectly obedient, righteous one who gave his life as an atonement for our sins, meaning he filled the bill. God's demand was righteousness and Jesus was the only one who met it. He paid the debt for whosoever would repent and believe. Romans tells us that he was delivered up for our, trans, our trespasses and was raised for our justification, our salvation. He ascended to the Father where he lives to make intercession for his people, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and is one day coming again to receive us to himself that where he is, there will we be also, John 14. He is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of David and the Lord of David. This is Jesus Christ. And so we ask, what will you do with this Jesus? What do you do with him? He's either right or he's not. Those are our options. Right? He either is who he says he is or he's not. There's no middle ground here. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And the question before us this morning is, will we take him at his very word? His very word is that he is the Lord. His very word is that he is the Messiah. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What place does God's word have in your life? 
Why do you serve God and others? What do you think about this Christ? Questions that demand an answer. Answers which will affect the way we live. Answer wisely and may God give us grace. Let's pray, Father. We do pray this morning that your word would open our eyes to see you for who you are. And as Jesus so helpfully takes the scriptures and lays them to bear upon the scribes, we recognize that that he's laying that to bear on us too. And some of us have made excuses for our unbelief. Some of us have questioned if, if Jesus is actually a man or if he's actually God. Some of us question the sincerity of the scriptures or the reliability of the scriptures. And yet here Jesus points to our, points to the very scriptures to tell us that they are from you. So would you help us to believe? Would you help us to serve this week with the proper motivation? not in order to get something from someone else, not in order to get something from you, but because of what we've already received from you. We love because we have been loved. For those here this morning who are making decisions about who Jesus is, we pray that you would give them faith in him, that you would extend your grace to them, that they might believe, that they might repent of their sin and believe on Jesus. This one who so loved the world, this one who gave himself in a demonstration of your love for us, the one through whom we are saved. We pray they would come to him today in repentance and faith. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.